Hello. Hi, Serena. How are you? Good, good. Is your work day over finally? <laughs> it is. I kept talking with Victoria for a while. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Okay. Yeah, I okay. had a meeting with Howard. Hmm? I, would, I had the onboarding meeting with Howard Bloom. Did that go okay this time? <laughs> <laughs> well, after a while, it took a while. A lot of back and forth, and then it finally worked. So, yeah. But that's okay. And, um, yeah. And then I chatted a little bit with Z because Z was the only one that sticked with it to get Howard on board. Oh, interesting. Everyone okay. else left. <laughs> and she said, Oh, I'm so glad it worked. <laughs> it was really nice. <laughs> and we realized she doesn't even live that far away from where we are. So. Oh, is that <laughs> yeah, I've seen her. I've talked to her in other rooms. Is that who we were talking about earlier? Z? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she comes here. Oh, um, yeah. I've, yeah, I've seen her talk in other rooms. Yeah, nice. very, yeah very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shall we just start? Hi, everyone. Hi, yeah. BA. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ram. Chewy. Hello, everyone. Mm -hmm. Let me ping a few people in, maybe they... Oh, I'm... It's very limited, the people you can ping in now. Do you, did you realize that? that? Yeah, it's mm. just very few people, and people tell me, oh, ping me in when you have a room. I, I can't, I can't do it. You know, it's, it's just a few people now. So, yeah, it's already, that's it. <laughs> Well, I missed a lot of rooms this week, so this will be good for me to catch up too. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah, then let's um, just start and then I hope I remember <laughs> it will be fine. <laughs> um, so uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society. We have a recap room this time on Monday evening. And um, yeah, let's go over what we learned last week. And um, it was a pretty exciting week. Um, so on Monday, we had um, Dylan Enright. He's a PhD student in microbiology and he's in the Glassman lab. Um, and what he does, he studies microbiome community structures and how they change um, um, related to their environment, like how they react to the environment. And he looks at soil fungus and bacterial abundance and species richness. And um, the study he talked about um, was um, especially about wildfires and actually and um, mega fires. And the interesting thing was that just by chance, um, they had collected soil, like another um, group had collected some soil 
before the mega fire for another study and um and then they also had um another control group where they um had um a very similar type of soil from a very um, close by region that wasn't affected by the mega fire so they had what usually these studies don't have two control groups and then they had the soil that was affected by these mega fires and it's the first study of this kind basically and they found that a few um organisms microorganisms survived these mega fires and they at the stage of characterizing them mapping them out who survived and um they are still looking into what are their characteristics why they survived this mega fires and and um and then also to observe how basically the, um, the mega fire um soil um bounces back and if they are a huge contributor if the diversity comes back that that is all ongoing work but until now just having this comparison of the same region basically before mega fire after mega fire um, close by region that wasn't affected and then compare um you know how the diversity shrinks and the few that survive and what they will do next basically if they will help out um, this region and the soil to bounce back so i think it's really important work not just the microbiome in our guts but basically in the soil is important for us uh, because without fungus um, plants can really uh, grow um, they need the symbiosis and uh, we need also um, bacteria and so and all these microorganisms to basically um, put back the ingredients for growth into the soil and uh, yeah so they are very very important and uh, yeah this is a study that finally addresses this i wasn't aware that we know so little about the microbiome of the soil in different yeah. this this was a really cool tie i made this one and um i didn't have a lot of questions for him because it was all ecology i keep wanting to okay well if you find the fire resistant fungi i mean let's you know figure out what the genes are and i kept thinking of well do we want to you know introduce and it's like no you can't go do that um so i ended up not having very many questions but i thought it was really fascinating work to just because it was such a controlled study, they they I think it was um, it was the speaker's advisor who happened to it sample, and so when he came into the lab, they already had the data, and then the fire had come through, and so they had a, a you know a really uh, it was a, a fortunate outcome to a really unfortunate you know catastrophe, but it did reveal um, you know where the fire resistant fungi are and what their species is and they got to study how it comes back so I, it was a really cool study yep i agree and i'm looking forward to learning you know what they learned from what why these specifically survive and what they will do and um yeah 
Okay, so um, next we had uh, Dr. Manoguri and Dr. Rishi. Um, they joined us from Alto University, which is in Sweden. And they had really cool, um, really interesting work. So what they did, they engineered uh, hydrogels. So they DNA engineer hydrogels, which um, are light adaptive and um, will have different responses and the responses reflect in different colors. And so basically they are basically copying nature um, chameleons, um, they especially looked at chameleons and the adaptivity of their color to surroundings or their mood and so on. And then basically wanted to recreate that uh, with their with their hydrogels. Um, so um, look at the, um, the presentation, it's a really well-made presentation. So um, they use light as stimulus. Um, they um, have um, this material they use there. These hydrogels are very, very um, stretchy. So uh, you can stretch them in all directions really, really well. And um, they are active plasmonic materials. And you can program um, to have a specific color response based on the input they get. Um, and they programmed it um, based on different light and heat inputs. Um, yeah, so if you want to look at slide number four, it actually shows really well how they fabricated them, how they uh, put those DNA components on and then embed that in this hydrogel. And you can program them in any way you want. You don't have to stick uh, to what they did. So they used um, gold particles to basically, um, with the light stimulus, to have um, different types of colors um, as an output. Um, and um, yeah, this um, the photothermal energy um, creates these oscillations. And then you have basically um, this um, different outputs of colors, which are really, really cool. Uh, yeah, it's just a really cool technique uh, that maybe will be used in the future for all kinds of um, indicators. Um, as, as I said, you, can, you don't have to use necessarily light or heat. Um, you can also use sound, they said, or... Uh, electromagnetic fields, um, so you could have them as sensors, as wearables um, that basically give like a color feedback. And um, yeah, it's just it's just so cool. <laughs> the applications are out there. This is just a very basic research of showing that you can do. You can generate this stre very stretchable hydrogels that change in color. And uh, yeah, it's um, up for grabs for people to invent, you know, whatever they want to do out of it. And and they are working on, you know, making now. And they really love the sound um, one that kind of Jamie asked about. So they are really thinking of creating a sound responsive one.
Oh, wow. That's cool. See, I love these novel material talks. I missed this one, but it looks cool looking over the slides. So they, the DNA wasn't really doing anything other than providing material property. Is that right? Um, yeah, they, so yeah, exactly. So depending on how many C's and T's and so you have a different melting temperature and this then kind of, uh, with different temperatures creates then a different, um, color spectrum mm -hmm. because of the, the melting. And then they also have eye motifs in there in this setup. So it's also pH dependent, but they can also make DNA structures that are not necessarily so pH dependent. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. What were their, what were their killer applications or it was just really cool? Yeah, it's just really cool. Like we then discussed, <laughs> what we could do about it and never like if this room would have never ended. <laughs> I had to go back to work and, and we went over two hours and we could have like, People, you know, we came up with more and more ways. What do we want to do with <laughs> <laughs> Oh, materials for ball gowns, huh? Yeah, like sensors for, I don't know. If I ask how sensitive they are to electromagnetic waves, if they are sensitive enough to be like a visual, you know, EEG type, that would be cool. Oh, yeah. But this was the talk with uh, Jamie wanting his uh, tactile material. Yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. That's how he came up with that. Oh, that would be that would be cool. That's a good. Okay, so it was just these hydrogels with the DNA modifications, and I guess you can the whole the, there's a whole creativity that could go into what coding sequence you want to apply. Exactly. Yeah, you can you can change the properties really um yeah quite quite very cool. very cool yeah okay let me get to the next link there were a lot of talks during the so a lot of European talks today or this week, right? Because I missed so many rooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were. Mm, it was just by chance, but you're mm -hmm. right. Okay, so we had the microbiome room, which was pretty interesting. He, let me put it up. No, that's, mm -hmm. that's the paper. Okay. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, this room was then, um, the postdoc was actually here and Dr. Reich, um, and it's from, um, James Collins lab and, um, at MIT and, um, they basically looked at, um, first they started looking at what happens to the microbiome with uh, when you um, use antibiotics and uh, what can you do to prevent basically the um, diversity loss of the microbiome uh, 
um, with antibiotic treatment. And they chose antibiotic treatment because that's the most common insult to the microbiome in, in humans. So um, yeah, this, um, this paper, they looked at inflammatory disease because of metabolic changes of like a poor um, microbiome. And um, they then um, engineered the strain of Lactococcus um, lactis. And um, um, so that um, it would basically um, after broad spectrum antibiotic um, exposure, um, you know, how this engineered bacterium would basically resist uh, to this um, strong antibiotic res uh, um, exposure and basically survive in the, in the microbiome. Um, and yeah, they were quite successful. They um, prevented the loss of colonization of, um, um, and um, in, they, are con they are still continuing to engineer life biotherapeutics that can also safely degrade antibiotics in the gut um, um, in order for basically the gut to be uh, to survive without having this major inflammation and major uh, insult um, to the gut due to antibiotic um, treatment. Um, yeah, and they are um, also doing clinical trials um, soon. And um, yeah, I think it's it's really important. So basically, he said that we have to kind of, um, you know, when we put sunscreen on, I got the phone call. When we are exposed to sunlight, we put sunscreen on, and that's really important in the future that we realize we don't, we not just have to protect our skin from major insults. We also have to start protecting our microbiome because it's um, really important for future health that we have a healthy one. So I think it was really cool applied science, basically. So I came in late on this one and I didn't get a chance to, um, I did cause I didn't hear the talk. I didn't know if they already covered it, but did he have a position on probiotic supplements in the diet? Well, he said, yeah, I asked him that. <laughs> he said, he's not the medical doctor. And um, there is like some sort of, um, um, there some people claim, you know, you don't get the diversity back if you kind of take this very strong um, micro, like this probiotics. Um, but he says that it is for now, he, it, he, again, he's not a medical doctor. He doesn't advise on treatments, but um, that's better than nothing. And also pre and probiotics are really mm -hmm. important. Um, and so far, but, you know, we have to do more work to kind of look into the diversity and what's ideally in the future, we know what your own microbiome, healthy microbiome looks like, because it will vary from person to person, or at least family to family, maybe. And you pass it on, you know, from birth, um, a big 
part is passed on. So um, uh, there has to be more work done to identify, you know, what's your healthy microbiome and how to get it back, basically. That would well, yeah, be because thing. even if you like, okay, here is your microbiome. Well, what do you do with that? I mean, and is it healthy? Could it be better? I guess we just don't know. Right? Yeah, he says the more diverse usually. So for now, the data looks like the more diverse your microbiome, the healthier you are and will probably be. Uh, so it's not really exactly which strains exactly you have and the amount. So it's more how many of the gene pool basically do you cover and the more the better. Because hmm. it seems like there, you know, there could be some bad ones in a really diverse set. I guess they just get weeded out somehow. Um, yeah, and we had a guest speaker actually that showed that bad ones can really produce this signals also from neurons to induce anxiety and stress and things like that. So um, they are definitely also bad ones, but if you have a high diversity, um, apparently it's basically a healthy one. But yeah, I I think there's still a lot of contradictory publications out there and we have to learn more. Do you remember the talk we had? I think it was, um, I forgot her name. Right now, it's not coming to me. We had the researcher here that found um, that some uh, microbiome bacteria produce the stress hormone, basically. That exists. oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember her name either, but yeah, there could be some nasty critters out there. Exactly. And then I think the diet and so on, probably. Mm, but yeah, so basically what they are doing is screening, more screening, and then engineer them in a way that they would, um, they would survive and degrade the antibiotics in the gut. Um, and um, that way basically make some strains survive, so. And he's already in clinical trials? Mm, yeah, they are getting, clean, yeah, they are switching also to a clinic. Oh, let me check. He has a name for that system. Uh, but I have it somewhere in my notes. Okay, it's probably in the paper. Okay. Uh, biotherapeutics. Yeah, let me pull up his. I think it's his. Yeah, there it is. It's in his link. I hope it's still working because he shared it. It's his Google Drive link. No still the same oh he didn't oh he shared the link i don't have his presentation so yeah if you want to learn more about it um the link for the presentation should be in the replay so dr rich 
and then if you see microbiome um yeah if you want to have the link to his presentation no more about um the elp platform that he's creating uh, that targets my gut microbiota for prevention and treatment of human disease um yeah then go on on his uh, presentation but it's elbp platform he named it that way so okay engineered life biotherapeutic platform that's where the elbp comes from <laughs> the lofty title <laughs> <laughs> at the yeah at the this institute exactly okay and next we had dr Alti. i don't know were you here when, when sam was here sam Alti. that was the talk let me pin the link really quick it was in the evening i probably was time no i missed the time crystals yeah yeah it was a morning room so yeah so uh, dr sam arty he's um at lancaster university in the uk and um he's working mostly on superfluid helium and um um yeah but basically superfluid discoveries is mostly what he worked on. And um, he has really cool questions in the bio. Uh, what does it feel like to touch a quantum fluid? And can we melt a time crystal? And whether the outcome is a time liquid? That was part of his bio. <laughs> so that was really cool. A cup of quantum liquid huh? yeah <laughs> that probably not too healthy <laughs> you know it happens if you drink it do you become more entangled yeah maybe you'll live forever <laughs> but, you know the oscillations where you're cool. stuck in a loop <laughs> oh right. yeah you're stuck in a loop oh that's where you have um you know like the famous movie the day Ground, Groundhog Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Drink a time crystal on the after Groundhog Day. No, I'm kidding. It's total nonsense. Please don't listen to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he basically uh, talked a lot about um, uh, how the setup is to make a time crystal and that it's kind of uh, an impossible uh, thought to be impossible um, because if you want, it's kind of a perpetual motion machine. And we had the time crystal room before um, um, with the Google senior researcher. And um, the thing is that um, these time crystals go on, in theory, they would go on and on forever if they are completely isolated um, between those two oscillatory um, states, uh, but they are not, they are never completely perfectly isolated. But he got them to um, 
in the state for one second, which is crazy. <laughs> it's such a long time for quantum states. So, okay, uh, so that yeah, that's a lot longer than the the yeah. other crystal. <laughs> and the thing is, why is um, he explained is because they increase the number, so they have now two time crystals. Um, and these two time crystals, um, they um, are basically in a non-linear non to level dynamic. Um, and um, yeah, he explained that because of that, they could increase the stability and also the time, uh, which was really impressive, the time. And yeah, you can see here in the presentation, the setup basically where this where he has this different chambers and the helium shield and um also the the nmr coils um the setup was was explained pretty well and then you have this two level system that basically increased the um, yeah the time so it just keeps oscillating back and forth at some frequency between two it, states yeah but it doesn't create any work, right? So that's why it's right. working, kind of not. Well, so um, did he say what frequency it oscillates? Uh, I have to check because it's not in the... Yeah, I'm not seeing... <laughs> oh, I see. It's, uh, no, that's the decay is over seconds. He generated a ten with twelve magnons processor on the external uh, that uh, associated with the magnetization processor on the external magnetic field. Oh, that's just the magnetic field. And the system observed the time crystal was extended to up to a thousand seconds, and the absence of the driving force. Oh well, on page four. D, it shows frequencies decaying. So they get slower? Yes, until it then finally doesn't oscillate anymore. But... So it bleeds off but, and then gets slower as, as thermal motion kind of knocks it, yeah. slows it down. Okay. And it also increase the temperature uh, in the setup. Uh, it's not as the need to not as cold as it needed to be before in the study, you know, we heard before, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm checking. Oh, and the coupling does interesting things. Hmm. Well, that's kind of cool. So they don't know what they, nobody's speculating what you can do with these things. They're still cool. One, so coupling extracted from the sideband extrapolates to 1.7 plus minus 0.4 Hertz at the crossing in good agreement with the fitted simulation value. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, the temperature. I'm trying to look up the temperature, but I can seem to. Yeah, I don't. He, in the slides, there's not too much mentioned. I don't think we asked about the exact frequency, to be honest. Well, they give some chart, but yeah, it's weird that the frequency would decay. I guess it's not weird, but it just says what it's doing as things knock. Um, I wonder, oh, hi, Fasudev. I, I wonder if you know you have any comments on time crystals, <laughs> but um. Yeah, this was this was kind of cool. It's impressive it lasted a second, but I didn't know that the frequency decays as well. So it's not a, a fixed frequency oscillator. Huh. Yeah, I think they started at uh, at a specific frequency and yeah, but it decays over time. I'm just trying to figure out the resonance frequency of the tank circuit can be tuned in eight equidistant steps between 550 kilohertz and 833, and corresponding to the external magnetic field. Oh, I thought that what was the chart on four? It looked like a four E. It looked like it started at 20 hertz. So it's 16.5 megatesla and 25 mega tesla like it's the external magnetic field was yeah. the magnetic field oscillating in strength yes oh that's what was driving the oscillations of the time crystal yeah and i think to start it off well it doesn't that it's not putting work into the system then um so no, I think they'll just, um, I think the idea is to then leave it alone and um, isolate it and then see if it keeps going for, um, you know, how long it keeps going on. And I think they got it to one second. Okay, so they just pumped it with external fields and got got a pitch and then that decayed as, as the... Um crystal decayed okay cool yeah. okay yeah it was cool to have that increase of time and um yeah. then we had dr jill let me pull up the pull up the link Dr. Gill, I'm sorry, it's Gill, not Jill. Dr. Gill, and here's the link. I'm not sure if you were there because I think it was a, oh, but wasn't it Friday? I think you were there, right? Uh, it was Friday morning, the multi room. Yeah, the transient reprogramming. Now this is familiar. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah, so he um, did his PhD in Cambridge, uh, UK. Um, and um, yeah, he is um, working on understanding how the epigenome changes as we age and how these changes are reversed during IPSC reprogramming. 
um, and in particularly focus on transient reprogramming approaches which uh, pr promote rejuvenation while maintaining the original cell identity and that's quite important so he doesn't change the genome in any way he changes the epigenome so how the genes are being used and it was really impressive um, that with his reprogramming um, so he basically established a protocol of the ideal uh, reprogramming type and time um, to basically rejuvenate um, cells um, and yeah did a lot of um, transcriptional um, analysis um, you know of different um, gene expression analysis how they temporarily are being regulated um, and uh, what type of yeah reprogramming changes that um, and he also looked at collagen which is really cool because when people use that you know, it will be impossible to rejuvenate collagen um, so yeah but that's the really cool yeah it's not well, impossible so he's just applying the Yamana, what is it, Yamanaka factors, right? For programmed periods of time. So there's a gradual uh, regression in the age of the cell through um, demethylation of the DNA. Is that basically what's going on? Yeah, not just demethylation, also histone, like how the genes are folded. Um, um, so it's not just um, methylation. Yeah, and so he activates um, this rejuvenation reprogramming with doxycycline. So, um, and, you know, so basically there's a way to have uh, this reprogramming happening only when a specific compound is present, and that's how you can time it. And he could uh, basically he found like a sweet spot if you do it too long which was done before it kind of messes things up again um, so um, you have to kind of find the sweet spot to have um, rejuvenation and not mess up things um, then further along um, yeah so he could turn back basically this epigenetic clock um, and uh, without changing basically the identity of the cells. So, um, yeah, he didn't wait so long that the cell's identity would go away, like there would be a stem cell mm -hmm. or something like that. See, I Just couldn't because... help, you know, chemically you'd expect, uh, if there's increasing methylation in time, that's going to change the physiological properties of the of the chromosomes and they're going to fold differently just because their interaction with water and it you know it, it kind of implies that well perhaps part of the developmental strategy is to position you know is the reason that you know or at least some component to aging is there's the gradual changing in the folding of the dna which will expose different uh, DNA or make them more readily available for transcription. And it's an interesting kind of strategy to sort of encode the expression of genes over time. 
you're systematically methylating and driving a different change and the fold or the quaternary structure would be tertiary and quaternary of the chromosomes that may expose in different periods of your lifetime expose different genes for you know kinetically for expression which was kind of cool because um, that might imply some uh, some of the mechanism for how you know large groups of genes will turn on and off or if there's a critical transition in the fold that may uh, facilitate you know large changes in development like puberty or other you know menopause or other um, you know dramatic changes in the phenotype yeah, exactly. So, yeah, during outlet development, that's really crucial. Um, you know, that's how the cell basically changes, like grows into the fate they were, you know, they're supposed to become. But then with age, um, um, it's basically kind of, um, yeah, with increasing age, uh, things become unavailable like methylation skills up and folding occur uh, that basically turn into miss um like into bad proteins that then accumulate in the cell and the cell can't keep up with it with controlling and then since the, also these um additionally to that these non-coding uh, ancestor viral DNA becomes also more active since um, over time the, the, the cell control system has just more and more errors to repair. And as soon as you don't actively suppress those, they become active too. And, you know, then you basically have so much big of a mess in the cell that they start, you know, age and dying. So, and just basically repolishing a scratch DVD. <laughs> I think they think I used that at some point to explain it. So well, and I wonder if, um, as you're exposing these ancient um, viral DNAs, if if that's an indication of, you know, the you know sort of average age where those infections, you know, were there in the first place. If there's this, you know, gradual refolding, and then. Um, it, it could indicate that, um, you know, that that was the whatever they were doing in at that period of their life, that's when they were vulnerable to those infections. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So whenever the cell is, is under really high stress, uh, these um, viral DNAs, they become very active and they make copies of themselves and duplicate themselves in the genome. And the mm -hmm. more this happens, the riskier it becomes for the cells. And then the theory is that, for example, disorders like ALS and uh, neurodegenerative disorders, um, you know, they are highly involved. These um, that the cell is just not, for some reason, and that person able anymore to cope with it. And with ALS, especially, people think that because was a really interesting few cases that NIH and lab at NIH observed that people that were on antiviral drugs uh, through HIV treatment, a long-term treatment, 
um, they were like they had this genetic severe form of ALS, but it never broke out really. They were already in their 60s and they were still doing really fine. And that, that's how people had like the first indicator that this may be due to some viral activity in cells and, you know, our ancient viral DNA. And yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a really interesting field, the epigenome. Um, it's really complicated uh, because it adds so many more levels of complexity to the genome. <laughs> and knowing all of it, it's basically impossible. I don't know. No, it's not impossible. It won't be impossible. But for now, it's it's really hard. So uh, it's, it's a really great study in the right direction to look at also the timing, um, not just what mechanism to activate to rejuvenate, but also look at the timing and then screen for what it's actually doing. So this will, yeah, this work will, will contribute to many more, um, not just aging, but also I think all kinds of disorders like chronic uh, disorders um, that are very very common in the general population, like diabetes and things like that. I think it will also contribute to to find treatments for those disorders, Parkinson and so on. So, yeah, the early detection would be another thing. And there is, we had a guest speaker here a while ago. I don't know. I, don't know. I think it's Dr. Belsky from Columbia University. Was that him? Uh, that came up with a fairly easy to use um, blood test where you can basically find I'm so sorry where you can basically find um, in a regular blood test um, the aging clock that you currently are on and um, that's also reversible so basically if you eat healthy you have less stress and so on you can see that this uh, methylation aging clock kind of stops or it goes even back a little bit. So he really sees it from a public health um, perspective where he wants to look at, you know, stressful uh, childhood, uh, you know, people that have undergo scarcity throughout their life. And he developed this blood test to screen basically how it affects them in the aspect of like chronic disease, aging. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's really cool what, that people are working on this. Um, so yeah, it can increase our quality of life by the end. I think we are just, what we are doing right now is just extending life, but not life quality. Um, and I think this type of work will uh, maybe, I don't know how much it will extend life, but it will for sure extend hopefully life, quality of life in the end also. So I think that's really important. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, let's go to our next one i think we're there right um the friday physics um 
um, oh yeah, this was the, with the simulation with the with the uh, the, the universal simulation. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. Yes. There was some good discussion on that. That was fun. I want to I want to render their data in the metaverse and fly around in it. Yeah, right. That would be so cool. And he had that YouTube video up. Um, if you are interested in looking it up, um, yeah, if you go on to the to the recording, then you can you can have the YouTube video. Yeah, it was a great video. Um, oh, go ahead and describe oh, no, no, go ahead. for the. Well, I mean, it laid out the. Um, so it was interesting technique, and there was a lot of discussion about it. But they had to find the initial conditions that once they um, so they balanced the, the dark they they injected the dark matter and the dark energy, and they had to balance those in a way with the uh, observable matter, such that when they ran their initial conditions forward, it would uh, pass through the um, the known data that we have and they ran about 50 trajectories uh, each took about a month on the Tokyo supercomputer so this was a completely heroic simulation um, but then they averaged the 50 and and that was the data it's interesting about you know what you know given that the constant um, velocity of light, you know, the farther over the simulation volume that um, that we're looking, the farther back in time. And so um, they uh, it was an interesting, you know, projection over the uh, up to the horizon of of what we can observe, uh, which would go back to fourteen billion years. But the data had to, in essence, pass through that point where it explained our observation uh, window out to our horizon. But then what's cool is it had, you know, the simulation contained, you know, the rest of the universe as it, as it would be today, the, you know, the predictions of the structure. And that informed some of the, you know, that would make predictions of certain structures that would would form that we're not able to observe yet, but they're already, you know, present today. But the light from them just hasn't arrived on our telescopes yet. So, um, really cool. They were able to make some, you know, prediction, you know, indications to um, the folks that with the that are, you know, have access to the the Webb telescope as to what kinds of structures in in what what directions, you know, there we might see early events of. Um, so that, I mean, that's really kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like the discussion and the room and also, uh, yeah, the discussion we had afterwards, how the universe is expanding, how at some point we will basically lose contact uh, um, to galaxies and the network will basically lose contact. What does it mean on the quantum level? Um, um, how things will change? We don't know, <laughs> but it was interesting to discuss about it. And um, 
also um yeah about this time machine to see how um things evolve possibly we cannot 100 percent know because um you know he explained how uh, in the beginning we have this set um conditions that we are relatively sure about but the further along time goes the more options we basically have and the more unknowns and this is basically one model but it's it's fitting quite well i i believe um as far as we know and um it it came up with these structures that remind me of the cytoskeleton for <laughs> yes, cytoskeleton, astrocytes, fungal networks, you know, it's, it was interesting to see that the whole web structure, how it, um, you know, looks similar on so many different length scales. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And the scale, and this is just the observed universe, you know, it's not the mm -hmm. <laughs> universe. Uh, so. I thought it was, it, there was an interesting set of side questions about um, in, in entanglements and, you know, I got off on a tangent about, um, you know, the, for, for photons that have gone beyond the horizon that, you know, well, you know, there, there, there can't be any communication with that part of the universe again that happened to be entangled. And we, you know, we measure their spin. In essence, we we know we start to know things about the universe that you know that, that is no longer connected, <laughs> which is yeah. just kind of cute. Because oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, well, so, but I, yeah, I didn't, you know, get around to formulating a, a question about that. But there was um, there was some discussion about, um, you know whether that's uh, what that would mean. Yeah, yeah, I asked this, if you can imagine like an evolution, you know, the Galapagos <laughs> Darwin um, birds, you know, when they are isolated, they kind of, if they evolve in a different way and the kind of the rules could change after, you know, if they have kind of a different evolution, basically, because they are not connected to us like, you know, to the whole network anymore. So what will happen to it um, over time? Yeah, just do the fact that, that increasing amounts of matter dropping off the horizon, does that affect, does that affect our, our, our dynamics? Yeah. And it's kind of cool. Well, the question is, will it kind of completely split off? Will it? Will that become the multi-universe? I don't know. Um, you know <laughs> yeah, like that's the multi-universe. All these uh, universes beyond the horizon. Yeah, <laughs> are like, parts like of the universe. I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about. Um, you know, then the fantasy takes over, and it's not fact-based anymore. <laughs> in my head. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it was really fun to think about these things and have this discussion. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And that was our week. Uh, I think it was pretty cool. And so we had already a room today, uh, earlier today. Um, 
and um, that was interestingly also about um, galaxies um, that are far, far away and looks back in time, basically. Well, they are candidates for galaxies. We don't know yet. So that was, but we'll discuss more in the next weekly recap this room. But it was interesting because um, they are very far, the furthest away observed galaxies. And um, they're, they're candidates for galaxies or they are maybe these primordial um black holes do you remember we had the primordial black hole that generated all the the dark matter energy room that we had were you there i don't think i i think i may have missed that one too oh, but that well. was a theory that that the dark matter came from oh well although it sounds familiar so the, there was a was a, a lot of little ones or it was a massive one that yeah, so these primordial um, black holes were really massive and they occurred basically in the first second of the Big Bang in this very massive state. And they, they, um, the, that was basically a model paper that um, discussed that this is basically the scenario, the ideal conditions to generate all this um, dark matter energy because we don't have these conditions that make any sense mathematically anymore but under those conditions it fit, the model fits it really well um, but um, we are not sure if these primordial black holes actually existed and um, so the talk today was about this very very far away galaxies that they have weird properties. Um, uh, so they could also be maybe a candidate for these primordial black holes. We don't know 100% yet. We just described the characteristics and what it could be, and they will collect more data. And then I asked if looking at it with the radio frequency would help. And he actually said yes, because black holes, um, generate, um, for, um, you can detect them if they are black holes in a very wide spectrum of frequencies. Um, and actually that you could basically, if they are black holes, you could also um, detect them with, with radio uh, frequency of detection. So yeah, it's, he said, oh, maybe you could col collaborate with this and this <laughs> that has this detection, this biggest detection um, um, device. The, oh, yeah. the radio telescope. Yeah, the biggest one. We would need the biggest one. So, yeah, I hope he said he would come back in the fall or winter, maybe have some updates about. Oh, cool. Were these like, were these quasars or something? I don't know, because quasars, were they quasars? Uh, no. Oh, okay. They were this H one and Higgs. Let me oh, let me go in and get the paper. I can just link it while we are here, anyways. Because <laughs> also, just 
And he was really good at explaining. Starburst galaxies are quasars. They don't know what they could be. Or they oh, okay, so they could be quasars. Mm -hmm. So, okay. yeah, there they are. But if you look at it, they describe them um, uh, with very distinct properties that are not common in galaxies we see, like in closer by, so newer galaxies. Um, so it could also be, you know, um, black hole growth in the sources are quasars, could be. So, um, yeah, hmm. it's really interesting. Cool. Yeah, so here they just describe their physical nature, basically, based on um, if they would be um, galaxies that are forming stars, um, they are creating stars at a very, very high, very unusual and very high rate, uh, which uh, is very surprising. So they would be extreme star formers. <laughs> Which is interesting. Oh, so and that's that's where they think um, a lot of dark dark matter was involved in the yeah. increased rate of star formation. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So this observed luminosity that could either mean there are a lot of stars formed at a very high rate, or could be also black hole, um, and. Um, that would require heavy seeds. So, um, yeah, but for that, they need to look at it uh, in more ways uh, to to get the more accurate, uh, you know, more accurate picture. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Looking back in time <laughs> again. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll have um a room tomorrow morning actually at 10 a.m where um dr de la Fer, uh she will look at she made an ai that consists of um neural nets and the neurons have dendrites um and oh, really she, dendrites. she increased the model oh that's cool and I see how that she did. increased uh she increased the stimuli detection with um, creating basically this neural net with uh, with dendritic neural net. So that will be the talk tomorrow at 10 a.m. And that's then really cool. I, I I mean I'll have to catch the replay because I don't I can't make yeah. it. But okay, the I'm replay. Sorry. <laughs> so, well, yeah. that's okay because then. Um, you know, I want to look over the paper too, because I really think we need, well, in order to even get to modeling the astrocytes, we need to better models. We need a dendritic model with synapses. Yeah. Even form the tripartite synapses, so. Yeah, it will cool. be interesting to listen to her. And then um, we'll have on Wednesday at 9 p.m. Dr. Armbruster. And is this a room just for you, sorry. <laughs> New function. 
astrocytes discovered in the brain. So, oh, it's in the evening, I hope. Yes, it's at 9 p.m. Yeah. And that's Wednesday? Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's even got astrocytes in the title? Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I'm definitely going to make it. And then we'll have on Thursday morning, 9 a.m., Dr. Kiehi, I hope I'm saying the name right, uh, talking about self-assembled logic circuits made from proteins, uh, which will also be interesting. From proteins, huh? Okay. Yeah. And then Dr. Kihu, um, it's on Thursday evening, like at 9 p.m. EST, talking about the expansion of desert climate in Central Asia. So it's a climate room. And on Friday at 1.30 p.m., we'll have Dr. Kagan talking about uh, gene mutations across species and how they shed light on aging. So, um, yeah, another aging room on, on a Friday. Mm, cool. Yep. So that will be our week. And, yeah, thank you for coming, everyone. And um, thanks, Serena, for being here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, enjoy the rest of your evening, everyone, and or morning or wherever you are. And, okay, uh, thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.